0: back to hit refresh podcast so as you know we're a you know for students by students kind of podcast and it today is a very special topic because everyone's heard about it i don't know if many people know about it if you're probably from a computer science background like me you probably know about it and you know you know you're getting into it but yeah so today's topic is data science so data science is the number one career choice of the 21st century and back in 2012 that is long time ago is from then, Harvard Business Review declared it as the sexiest job of 21st century. So you know that it's something I might you might have heard it here and there. So today we have with us Kenji, and if you are in the field, then you know him because you might have come across his videos. You might have come across the hashtag 66 days of data. I myself am a member of that hashtag. I have 18 days in and hoping to finish 66 soon and learning something every day. It's a very interesting concept, especially we'll get into that. We'll get into it. We don't want to give spoilers in the initial part of the episode, So, but that's a heads up for you. So basically I'll just give a quick introduction. Ken is a famous YouTuber. You might, as I've mentioned, you might have watched his videos. He's the founder of hashtag 66 days of data challenge, which is basically constructed to help people create the habit of learning. Now he's also the head of data science, at Scouts Consulting Group. And he's also a fellow podcaster. So that's, that's amazing. So check out Ken's nearest neighbors. We'll get into that all the links in the description. But hi, Ken, how are you? How's today? How's the day?
1: I'm great. Thank you
2: so much for having me on.
0: That's amazing.
2: So how did you how did you start your data data science journey? So what actually motivated you to become a data scientist?
1: So it's funny, I I actually didn't set out in my career with the intention of becoming a data scientist. So all my life, I wanted to play professional sports. That's all I wanted to do. So in high school in the States, I played baseball, which is, I guess, a little bit similar to cricket in terms of like popularity in the U (laughs) S and I injured myself and I eventually started playing uh, golf at a fairly high level. And so I pursued that in college. And then I tried to, to pursue that professionally after college. And while I was playing, I found that data looking and analyzing my performance was something that gave me a competitive advantage against my peers. So I was one of the only people that was really analyzing my performance every, every day after the rounds and looking at my performance over time. And I realized that there might be something there. And after I eventually, you know, started playing professionally I started analyzing the data of professional athletes and realized how much better they were than i was and that that maybe it wasn't the best option for me to pursue athletics as a a full-time career but i developed a really unique specialization in analyzing golf data and performance data and i realized at that time that wow i was interested in this i needed more tools and more skills to be able to do that at a higher level so i went back to grad school in global business, where I learned some statistics. I learned how to work with SQL and a couple other skills. And then I eventually went back and got my master's in computer science because I saw, I saw programming as an integral skill to advance in the career that I was interested in. So I really was following my interests in sports and understanding performance. And I eventually found or studied the relevant skills to be able to get me to to that level where i could analyze information at a high level it was never oh i wanted to be a data scientist i was just constantly chasing these problems of understanding my own performance understanding performance of professional athletes at the highest level and then i looked back and i said oh i have the entire data science skill set this is this is pretty cool <laughs> so um you know i obviously I, I i started to realize this kind of during grad school and uh, the, the second time when I was doing computer science, and and I did some normal data science internships and roles after that, but it was before that that I realized, wow, I'm creating this prerequisite skill set, and now I can leverage this in, into this this new position, or I can call myself that, or whatever it might be.
0: Mm-hmm. That's, that's actually fascinating to actually apply, you know, the concepts from your real life and then get into the field that, but one thing that you mentioned is that you liked golf and what we found out is that one of your, I guess the first listed internship was in the PGA tour. So how did that come to be and how did you get that chance? And I believe because you are an average golf player, that's like your perfect internship.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was re- it was really cool. So it wasn't related to data or analytics at all. I mean, this was before I was even interested in that. I was in business and marketing. Yeah. And before that, I guess I didn't list it, but I had an internship at the United States Golf Association as well. And so I got that just through my network. The USGA, is, as it's called, runs a lot of golf events in my local area or just all over the US. And I would play in a lot of those events and I got to know the rules officials and those types of things. and. One of them said, Hey, you'd be a good candidate for this internship. And I applied and I eventually got it. I think that inevitably helped me land an internship with the PGA tour. Later I went through the normal application process. I got in again, this was a corporate marketing internship. So I was working on their title sponsor team. So each of the PGA tour events has a title sponsor to it. So it's like the waste management open is right now. So waste management sponsors the tournament. So I was looking at those deals, trying to understand them, trying to understand how the, the sponsor and the PGA tour got the most equitable, equitable relationship contractually. Honestly, I had a lot of fun. I met some interesting people, but the the content of the internship was not super exciting to me. You know, I was working in marketing. I was doing a lot of contracts. I was doing a lot of grunt work. And the, the nature of that work is very, very broad and ambiguous. You're talking with a lot of people. I found over time that I really like roles where i can either create the work that i'm doing i have a lot of options to pursue what i'm interested in or there's very concrete things you know discrete outcomes in what you do and i think in data science there's a really cool mix of that so inevitably we're going to want to build a model that produces positive return on investment for a company right but how you do that and how you get there is pretty can be really broad but you still have that clear goal of we want to you know do xyz with this model. So I really like that that balancing act is there and you know in some of the past roles and some other you know lines of work that wasn't as as clear cut for me and I'm I'm you know I'm glad I found a profession that that my mindset and my philosophy matches well with.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, wow, that's that's really amazing. So uh so the next question was uh, uh again as uh, thesis mentioned that we are uh podcast for students. So what uh, is your beginner's checklist of things that uh, we need to do while getting into data science? Like there are many things that we can do. So uh, like what we, what do we need to do? So first, so is it like we need to learn Python first, or we need to start with SQL, or some people just start with projects and learn things on their way. So what is really that you think that we need to do uh, at the
1: start when we learn data science? Yeah. So speaking as to students in particular, I mean, I was a student for a long time, right? I did an undergrad, I did two graduate degrees and something that I realized is I didn't leverage all the opportunities that were presented to me when I was in school. So you have clubs, you can be a part of, you can be around a lot of interesting people who are also want to get jobs or do interesting things, right? You guys started a podcast. I think that that's awesome. That's an extracurricular, but. You're able to do that probably because you're either in the same place for university or friends before. In some way, uh, education or university has allowed that to happen or made it easier for you to do that. And I think a lot of people believe if I go to school, if I do X, Y, Z degree, I'll get a job after. And that's simply not the case. The case is that if you go to school and you leverage the resources of the school and you do extracurriculars and you build a portfolio, then that gives you the best opportunity to break in. So it's not necessarily what you do in school. It's what you do with the time that school allots you or the structure that school allots you, right? I mean, I went back to school for grad school because I realized that it actually bought me time, right? I, if I'm going to school full time, I have a lot of other time in the day to pursue entrepreneurial projects, to build up my project portfolio, to get internships, to do all these things that improve my capital, improve my capital for, for the, for the workplace. And so I think that that's a really important message is that you know while you're in school, try and do research, try and do projects, try and get an internship, learn from uh, other courses on topics that you're interested in that maybe your school isn't teaching. Those are the things that'll make you successful in your career. In order to specifically get into data science, I personally think that learning a programming language is a really, a really good first step. I'm not gonna say it's the only way to do it because a lot of people think you should learn math first, but I believe that if you learn programming first, that allows you to apply the math that you learn later. So right, if I wanna understand how a regression works or how a normal distribution works, I can create those objects in Python, for example, and then I get an understanding of how they work because I literally had to build them. So you have the tools, you have a structure, you have a framework that you can attach this math on it. No, no longer becomes theoretical, it is applied. So I think that that's a really relevant first step. And then after that, I think it's really important to get your hands dirty. I mean, in, at least from my experience, and I can't speak for everyone, I found that I learned the most when I was doing personal projects. I learned the most when I was analyzing my own golf data, right, because it had this yeah. intrinsic value to me. And I got the most benefit from it because I had output from it. There, you know, The beautiful thing about a project is like, it's not just an exam where you file the grade away for later and never look at it again. It's something that's living, breathing, and you can share with people and you can continue building on it. It's not something that, that ever really has to die. You can make, you can do a little bit on a project for the course of five years and it could become a company. Right, so to me, there's, there's a tremendous value in pursuing those things and, and showing what they can become from a learning perspective and an outcome perspective. Yeah, yeah.
0: and for the listeners, Firstly, I would say that pause the episode, go to the YouTube, search him. He's kind of a celebrity over there. That's one spoiler alert. (laughs) But yeah, no. Project influence learning is definitely one of the best ways to learn because you're part of the process. You make your own mistakes You learn from them. You're searching for the answers yourself and you're very uh, Influenced by whatever, you know, it happens and you're an integral part of it and uh, I believe you the first video in your YouTube channel as well is also uh, a project review sort of a thing where you talk about I guess the project you're doing or you have done and It's definitely worth checking out and I actually recommend everyone to actually go through his uh, YouTube channel because there's a lot of structured learning process over there and uh, you can like the various types of resources and a lot of them.
2: As they just mentioned uh, the YouTube channel. So we were actually going through through your YouTube channel and uh, there was this video named that you won't you can't become a data scientist, something like that. So it was really catchy and I actually saw it. And you mentioned in that video that there's actually a huge supply of uh, entry level data scientists into the market. Like there are many people who are aspiring to be uh, data scientists. So how would you describe the market out there? Like, is it is it really tough to land a job uh, if you're a data scientist and are there
1: enough opportunities in the market? So I think the video is called why you probably won't become a data scientist. Yeah, yeah. And uh, (laughs) the idea of of that video is to let people know. I mean, like, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Becoming a data scientist is relatively difficult, or you have to learn a lot across multiple different disciplines. So like uh, software engineering, math, as well as business logic, right? You also, there's a lot of people that want to get in the field who are, are usually very, fairly intelligent and, and hardworking. And that is a realistic barrier. Do I think that the field is saturated even at the entry level? Absolutely not. Do I think that the field is slowing in terms of growth? And that doesn't mean that there's going to be, you know, that there aren't going to be additional opportunities in the future. Absolutely not. The field is growing at unbelievable levels. I mean, if you think about it, if I look at the maturity, like, of of organizations and how they properly leverage data, I'd say 10% of them, maybe 20% of them, are even using advanced analytics right now. Right. If you look at all the, the the organizations in the world, especially globally, right. So to me, we're just at the at the starting point. You look at the the age of the profession. I mean, data science has been around for maybe a little over ten years, as as we know it. I and mean, we look at software engineering. People don't say, "Oh, software engineers, it's a dying breed." <laughs> you know, there's there there aren't any jobs. Whatever it is, it's continued to grow year over year because the world is increasing in the amount of technology we use, and it's increasing every day exponentially in the amount of data that we consume and that we have. So, you know, from a macro level, there are very little barriers to entry to the field at a very, very broad level if we're looking at how the field's growing. From a micro level, if you're a student and you're applying to jobs, you still have to differentiate yourself, right? You still have to be in some way separable from the pack. And so I think a, a project portfolio is a really good way to do that. The channel of communication, how you reach out to companies. So rather than from job boards, getting referrals or 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 even reaching out to recruiters directly, the messaging you use to reach out to these companies. I mean, recruiters get a lot of emails every day. How do you come across as more authentic? How do you come across th- in a way that your skills are more valuable? How do you show rather than tell? I mean, I get so many emails of people asking me for jobs and they just send me my resume. It's completely not personal. let uh, send me their resume. It's not personal at all. I mean, I get, you know, hundreds of emails a day. Why would I read that one over the next one? What, what would get me to respond? And I think a lot of people don't, don't look introspectively about what type of email or what type of message they would actually respond to. I will also say, I think the job market or the job application process, people view it wrong, right? People think that they should be, you know, Being a good candidate for a lot of jobs is going to get them a job. No, if you're a 75th percentile candidate, so a lot better than the average. And you apply to hundred jobs. You'll probably get zero jobs, right? Because there's going to be 25% of candidates that are better than you in all of those scenarios, even though you were a good candidate in every single one, a candidate who absolutely bombed 95 interviews. But they were in the ninetieth or ninety-fifth percentile of the of five of them, or, or did I say ninety or ninety-five? But I or you know ten percent. That person is probably going to land at least one job, right? And so it's a min-max equation, not a law of averages equation. And I think that that's something to consider. So how do you put your best foot forward for a few of the companies that you really want to work for? Maybe that's doing a project specifically relevant to the type of data that they use or their industry, right? Maybe that's finding out and and doing informational interviews with five people from that company, getting to know the culture really well and just blowing people away with how passionate you are about working at that company or that industry. I mean, those are the things, the like hyper-focused specific uh, preparation for interviews that get you a job, not necessarily just being a a good candidate. And I, I think that that's something that's inherently flawed about how almost every student approaches these things, right? As students, right? You go, maybe you get, I, I don't necessarily remember the, the grading system you use in, in India, but in the US you get straight A's all the way across, right? Um, you know, a, a lot of people can get straight A's and it's good and everyone's celebrated, but you're not choosing one person from that class to, to graduate or something like that, right? Um, there's also this mental shift that you see where as students, you're used to getting good grades all the time, right? You're not used to failure. Whereas in the interview process, the average candidate gets a callback to be interviewed around 2% of the time. So you're going from like maybe missing two points on exam and 98% to the opposite, where you're maybe getting two callbacks at 2%, right? And so this mental shift is very hard for a lot of people to take, and it's very confusing and very, you know, it's, it's disenfranchising. It's, it's, it's a lot of things, but understanding that it's just a different game and that you're playing by different rules in school is a huge paradigm shift that you can make, which I think is very powerful.
0: So one thing I'd like to ask is that you have said that, uh, you know, how you would suggest people to start with Python and, uh, and, you know, programming language instead of the math portion. So one of the popular questions we got asked by our audience was that uh, what role does uh, data structures and algorithms or, you know, other parts of uh, the CS field, such as web development, for example, just for the sake of the question, how much do they, you know, factor in while you're preparing for a data science role? Or, you know, you want to be a data scientist. So how much of that does do factor in while you're preparation?
1: So it depends on where you're applying, right? Yeah. If the place you're applying the data scientists are more full stack, and they're doing front end stuff, you should probably learn the tools that they use, that would give you the best chance of yeah. getting the job. Right. You can leverage a lot of, I I think, front end development skills to differentiate you from the pack. Right. If Mm -hmm. a lot of data scientists don't have that, that is a good way to differentiate. But is every data scientist or even the majority of data scientists going to be using those skills on a day to day basis? Absolutely not. Right. So uh, there is only a couple of companies that I know that do algorithms for the data science, pure interview process, which I think if it's irrelevant to the job is a really stupid thing but some of them do it, Uh, would I apply to those companies personally? No, right? Because it's an opportunity cost thing. If I spend all this time learning essentially like how merge sort works and which I do roughly remember from my computer science degree, I couldn't couldn't tell you how a lot of this stuff happens now or like, you know, like binary search or how linked lists or or array structures work. Um, If I spent all the time doing that to prepare for a relatively few amount of interviews that ask for those things. I feel like if I spent that time preparing my portfolio or doing different reach out, or I don't know, like writing better code, I could probably, it probably would benefit me not to study those things at all, right? You only have so much time in the day, you should spend that time on the things that will take you the furthest or will differentiate you the most or will make you the best possible candidate. Right. I would, I would almost every single time if I was interviewing a for someone, if I was interviewing someone, prefer that they did an additional project over understanding how to reverse a linked list. Okay. okay.
0: Yeah. Because one of the main reasons that this comes up is because in, you know, generally in colleges in India placement, you know, the process of getting a job, DSA is like a mandatory thing, regardless of which domain you want to go in. So I guess that is the main reason why this question comes up. Yeah. yeah, and
1: I should say my experience is is almost exclusively focused on the U.S. job market and Europe. I can't speak as effectively to the India job market or quite a lot of other countries. So definitely take what I say with a grain of salt. Yeah. I yeah. think that there's a lot of people who I look up to associated with that. Uh, you know, like Abhishek Thakur. Uh, Sanyam Bhutani and then there's a couple other people who I've interviewed who have a lot better understanding of the India market than I do so I would definitely uh, explore some of their stuff as well
2: yeah Okay. so uh, now we actually talked about uh, those things I mean studying those things with respect to interviews but uh, what about uh, building a portfolio as you said building a portfolio and uh, um, applying that knowledge in our projects so my question was basically how does a student who has done courses about data science and uh, TSA everything so how does one how does uh, that student take that knowledge and start applying it in projects so how where do you start in projects?
1: So there's a couple places I mean if you aren't ready to pursue your your own project you can go on kaggle.com It's probably my favorite resource for data science related information. And you can see the projects other people have done all of their code is is saved there in notebooks and you can just look through it and see how they, they came to the, to the, I wouldn't say solutions, but they came to the insights that they did Right. And then you can effectively like use their code. You should give them credit of course, but you can use their code and expand on it and say, okay, you know, I, I tried, they did this. I tried, I'm trying this other algorithm and I tried these parameters uh, when tuning the model and this helped me to get these results rather than these other results. And that's how you can iteratively learn. You don't have to jump in feet first and do your own project. You can learn from someone else's work and expand on it. Next, you can still use Kaggle as well. You can find a data set there if you'd like, and you can start analyzing it. It's all there. It's Usually the data is pretty good. I mean, I recently did a project in my community where I released all of my YouTube data for people to analyze. And there's already been four or five different notebooks where people have come and Made some really good visualizations and i've actually learned quite a bit from the analysis which is cool right but you know things like that it's also thinking about topics and projects that are relevant to you right if uh, you know i track my sleep data pretty heavily with my my ring right and so the idea that um i might be able to find some insights in that that are relevant to helping me sleep better be healthier or whatever it might be i think that's that's pretty salient that's a pretty pretty good place to start as well. So, you know, there's plenty of places to find projects. There's plenty of stuff out there. It's just a matter of deciding to do it rather than thinking about it.
0: Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, I myself have been working on Kaggle and I find it really resourceful because you can you have courses there. So if you're an absolute beginner, you can like, you know, do those courses, figure it out, learn a bit and then implement and then there's a link of- collection of data sets which is just endless and you know a lot of opportunities to learn but that kind of gets us to one question that we have that is 66 days of data we have to talk about it which is the hashtag 66 days of data so it became a phenomenon uh, you know there was discord servers there's YouTube channels there's Twitter if you google like sorry if you search hashtag 66 days of data on Twitter it's, you're gonna go crazy and even on LinkedIn and you know there's a whole huge community that has been formed so How do you get the idea? How did that start? And, you know, what's the journey been like?
1: So one of my favorite books is called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And the idea behind the book is that if you want to make meaningful change, you do it through habits. You habitualize a new behavior. And the best way to start a new habit is to start with something very small. So, for example, if you wanted to start exercising, maybe you would start with doing a push-up every day right it's atomic like what is the habit at the most basic level the smallest kernel of what that habit is and in theory you should be able to do that push up every single day whether you're sick whether you're really tired whether it's 11:59 before the day ends you can roll over and do a push up and you just have to do one you should be happy with doing one but the funny thing is once you're down there you're doing one push up you feel kind of silly you're like why am i just doing one Right, so you might do you might do one and it's fine, or you might do two or three, or you might do five, you might do ten, you might be really motivated and do twenty. Like all of those options are okay, but as long as you do that repeatedly, you ingrain it. It becomes relatively effortless to get down on the floor and to do the push up. And over time, you can add to it, and you can you can make that habit even more. You can chain habits together. After I do a push up, I'm going to do one ab crunch, and I'm going to do one squat too, something like that, right? And it builds over time. So the idea behind 66 days of data is, can we create a data science learning habit that we do every day? And, you know, the other thing behind the the 66 days of data is that it only has to be five minutes each day, right? We're just creating that atomic habit. And so the reason it's 66 days is in the book, James Clear talks about how 66 days is the average amount of time that it takes to create a habit. And I think it's fun. I I chose 66 because a lot of people ask why 66, why not hundred, why not, whatever it is. (laughs) And so there's, there's some like additional mystery or intrigue around that there's some lore. There's like a good reason in my opinion to attach that to it. So that's the habit portion. The other part of 66 days of data is that for me, I found it unbelievably powerful and important to share my work. If you look at YouTube, if you look at any of the things that I've done, All of it has come from me putting myself out there whether my work was necessarily good or bad and i've gotten speaking opportunities i've been on podcasts like this i have sponsors i have all of these different things that have you know a lot of job opportunities whatever it is that have come out of this and i think it's important in 2022 going forward for people to have a presence online so you know talk about a differentiator in the job market if you're searchable with with a challenge or something like this that's such a powerful thing it's such a positive way to put yourself out there. Uh, the last thing is that if someone is doing this challenge, say they're they're posting uh, on their favorite social platform every day for 66 days, they're learning data science every day for 66 days. The beauty is that they can look back at how far they've come over time, right? They can see over 66 days how much they've actually learned. And there's this weird phenomenon where from day to day, we don't believe that we've changed or we've learned that much. But over a fairly long period of time we can see the incredible strides that we've made and so i think you know a little over two months is enough time to be able to see a really strong improvement that you made in learning data science and I, i'm really happy that this challenge can remind people of that that they have come a long way because it's so easy to get discouraged like i've been discouraged myself i mean i've talked about it quite a bit on my on my videos where you know i, I was kind of beat down or whatever it is and you know having a simple reminder like wow i did that i did this for 66 days i did xyz project during this time i learned xyz concepts." that's an awesome feeling and and people should be reminding of themselves of that constantly okay
0: no definitely and I love the fact that people are very honest, and especially I guess because that's the main thing which comes up is because it's only for five minutes. That's the minimum amount of thing you do per day, and that's the most doable. And I love the honesty of people because you see some tweets or some LinkedIn posts where people are like, "Today was a lazy Sunday, so I just you know read a book for like ten minutes. I read this so-and-so data science book for ten minutes," and I love how people are honest, and I guess that. As you said, uh, even like when you lose weight, you don't really see that change like every day after every workout. It happens in a period of time. So that's brilliant. Exactly. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, another really positive thing that came out of it was the community. I mean, there's over 11,000 people in the Discord. It's very active and people are holding each other accountable, which I think is awesome. I mean, that's another part of posting it socially is that. It's not just you that you're letting that you're letting down. If you stop, it's other people that are expecting you to post or do whatever. And so, I think that's an awesome and powerful force that you can use in your life to to make sure you get things done or to push you towards your goals.
2: Yeah. Uh, another uh, interesting thing where we actually wanted to ask is uh, we actually saw this that uh, you were an adjunct professor at uh, the DePaul University in the uh, Chicago. So. Uh, and we actually also learned that you're also uh, an alumni of uh, the same university. So, how is actually the experience of being the alumni and again a professor in the same university?
1: Uh, it's cool, you know. I, I taught the course remotely, and it was in a different a different school than the one I went to. So, I went to the CDM, which is the College of Digital Media, I think, something like that. But uh, but that's where I did my computer science degree and the uh, the school that i taught the course in was in the design school so the course i actually co-taught it with a, a incredible professor Ovetta Sampson and it we taught a course called designing ethical ai systems so it was teaching designers some of the basics of data science machine learning and ai and helping them to work with data scientists or machine learning engineers or whoever it is to create more ethical systems out there because you know i think with more powerful models there's going to be a lot of moral and ethical issues that we run into and i i think it is the data scientist's responsibility to manage a lot of the the concerns around that but it's going to be really difficult for us to to do that to do that ourselves like there's a design element there's a user feedback element there's a user-centric approach which comes from design that can help us to make models that are more beneficial and less harmful over time. So I think it's cool, like a hybrid discipline that's coming over time and is, is really becoming very popular. Um, that intersection between design and technology is, is awesome. And I'm, I'm glad I could have been a part of, of teaching something relevant about that.
0: Right, it's absolutely brilliant, I guess i i as you said in the beginning, it's a very cool feeling to you know be a professor in the same university, even though it's a different college I believe so coming to the last question about this segment, and it's basically you know what is the future of data science I you have talked about it a bit, but we have the web three revolution coming in where, you know, the metaverse and NFTs and everything, which again, it's good for the data science field because there's a lot of data being generated now, The, I guess even more than, you know, compared to the web one or web two generation, uh, you know, generation. So what is your outlook or what's your perspective on, you know, the future of data science? How do you see it growing and, you know, how the application of the concepts?
1: Yeah, so there's two things. I think first, there's always going to be more data, right? I mean, we're in a a state where there's just probably more data than we can even process right now at a reasonable level. And so that's gonna be a huge factor. The other thing is there's gonna be, in my mind, conflict between individual freedoms and the data that's collected, and that's gonna have a large impact on the algorithms that are made. So for example, in, in, in the US, there's a reasonable amount of concern about individual data, being used by companies. Right. And from an AI perspective, that's limiting for the models that can be created, right? So the models won't, the more, the more data, the more powerful, the models in like very simple terms, if you look at other countries, for example, China, all of the public data is accessible by the, by the government. Culturally, they're a lot more comfortable with all of their data being shared. So the models that they can build are probably going to be more advanced. Right. But they're going to be less sensitive to individual humans. Like there's some like, I guess, data privacy and, and rights that are gonna be given up. And so companies are always gonna have the incentive because they can build better models to take more individual data or to get more attributes or get more information. And so I think that there's gonna be a little bit of conflict associated with that. Like what is ethical, what is unethical? And that, that might vary greatly by country. Right. I mean, it might be perfectly fine. And there's a social contract associated with that. So I think that that's a, a major, I wouldn't say pivot point, but that's gonna be a point of contention globally over time. I also think that data science, as I described earlier, is gonna continue to grow. I, I don't see why it wouldn't. Companies have kind of slowed down data science hiring, but they've picked up data engineering hiring, right? That means they're building significantly better systems for data scientists to use in the future. So I really expect data science hiring is gonna follow that data engineering hiring boom right now. And so I think we're gonna see another revolution in the data domain where it's not just the cutting edge top technology companies that are doing data science at a high level, we're gonna start seeing some sort of like mid-tier companies, older companies that are reprioritizing, really adopting a lot of data tools that, that is gonna change how they do business.
0: Yeah, so. Coming to the next segment. So that's the questions part. So coming to the next segment is basically a new one which we currently recently have introduced and it's basically questions from the audience itself. So the first question is by Harshul, and he asks how to go from learning coding in a coursework or move level where you can actually make your own models and integrate it with APIs and etc. So how does that process occur?
1: I think you just have to do it. There isn't like a, you know, you, you just struggle through it. Every project is really hard, right? There's a lot of stuff. I don't know. I mean, I remember, so I did a project where I made a leaderboard for my YouTube subscribers, basically. So that entailed me having to figure out how the the YouTube API worked. I had to, I decided to use a new tool, a new framework to be able to visualize that data. I had to build a database and use AWS to to make, uh, to make upload data to it and to query it, right? Like 85% of that stuff I had never done before. And I just read a bunch of articles, I just Googled a bunch, I searched a bunch, and that's what data science is. I mean, you know some stuff, you know how to like load in libraries and basic things, <laughs> but I'd say 80% of the work is just searching and finding and just like kind of struggling your way through it. And then you look back and you're like, wow, I did that. Like. Data science is about learning that meta skill of being able to find the information that's relevant and eventually apply it. It is not about writing code. It's not about, um, you know, understanding the math per se. It is about getting the outcome that you wanted by like looking all over the internet, by, by just like looking at the documentation by looking at the example problems and then piecemealing it together and then cleaning it up over time
2: yeah uh so the next question is by aryaman and he's asking how is data science changing the way sports are played so as it is it
1: transforming the field yeah i mean it depends on the sport i mean you look at basketball for example the number of three-point shots that are taken every year has has effectively gone up since i don't know i think it was like 2010 or something like that because it's a significantly higher expected point shot, right? So so let's say someone shoots 50% from the three point line. Um, every shot that they take, if they shoot 50% is worth, um, 1.5 points. Right. Let's say they shoot 50% from inside the three point line. Every shot that they take is worth just one point expected value. Right. And that could be a foot of difference only, right? You take a deep two, like it's literally, could be this far. The difference between 1.5 expected points and one expected point so you think about it okay like why would anyone ever take a deep two if they could take one step back and um, and take a three where the expected points is significantly higher right i, I think yeah. that that's a really very basic and clear understanding and you know in basketball it's easy in baseball if you're familiar with that people have effectively stopped bunting uh, because they realized that that was not an optimal strategy so data is is absolutely changing the way that sports being played. I can't speak too much about how it's changing cricket or, uh, soccer or, uh, or some of the other sports out there, but I would imagine it absolutely is.
2: I actually want to know that this is my question. I'm just curious that, uh, the, are there any, uh like, today, while, while the sports are played, the teams or the franchisee, do they approach the data scientists and do they like incorporate all the strategies from them or, uh, like is it, is it only they do it by themselves, analyze the data and just uh, tell the players
1: to, how to play in a... uh So every Major League Baseball team has a sports analytics person or department, like every single one. They've realized that it's that important that everyone is investing at least some time and money in. I'd say like three quarters of basketball teams, maybe about half of football teams have an in-house analytics department. So it's, oh. it, yeah, they, I mean, they're spending money, they're, they're, they realize the importance. I think in sports, just like in business, there's a cultural sort of resistance to it, where it's like, hey, we've done this and it's worked really well over time. Why do we have to do this new analytic stuff? And it, I think the teams that get rid of that and they realize and they embrace it, there's gonna be just this huge haves and haves not scenario where the people who are doing it are gonna be winning at an unbelievable rate and the people that aren't are not gonna be performing very well.
0: Yes. Okay, well. <laughs> So Bhuvan has asked, how do you break a topic as large as data science and how do you break it into chunks and then, you know, use that to gauge your progress and cover the important aspects?
1: Projects and following your interests. I mean, what, what better filtering mechanism is studying things that you're interested in, right? And maybe you're interested in a lot of stuff, but if you figure out a concrete project that has very clear tasks It's like okay well i first have to get this data so i'm gonna have to learn a little bit about web scraping maybe i'll use selenium or maybe i'll use beautiful soup or or, you know there's only a couple tools that you can web scrape in great i figured out that part okay what type of question am i asking is it a classification problem am i trying to you know predict what category something falls into or is it a regression problem where i'm trying to predict a, a numerical outcome okay it's a regression problem then i look at different types of regression algorithms that i apply to it right And so asking good questions of the data and figuring out exactly what you want to understand or solve or prove those are the best ways to narrow the scope of what you're studying
0: this brings us to the last segment and firstly we'd like to really thank you thank you for taking out your time from your day and thank you for being here thank you for imparting all this knowledge to us it's it's very helpful for our audience because especially because this is a booming field and it's something people are really getting into so thank you so much. So now we come to the last segment of our episode and it's basically consists of two questions that we ask to all the guests. So the first question is that what's the best mistake that you've ever made in your life which really reaped some positive rewards and or gave you a good learning at the end?
1: Uh, so the first, I, I think the best mistake I made was working in management consulting for six months I hated it. I did not want to do it, but it motivated me to pursue something more entrepreneurial. It motivated me to study things that I was interested in. And I think I had an awesome boss, I had an awesome team that just work was not for me. And I think it's important to know that is like, you know, you, you learn so much more from from your work failures than you do from your work successes, honestly. But the work failures are really difficult because they can cost you financially they can make future work opportunities less, less available. And so you really have to be careful with those. I got out really lucky, you know, I I ended up going back to school and I I got to pursue that, but I think that's that's probably one of the biggest ones. Maybe the other one was uh, playing golf where I just realized I wasn't good enough. This thing that I had, you know, wanted so badly to do professionally and just coming to that realization that I have limitations is is something that's really hard to do, but just because you're limited in one area doesn't mean that you're limited in all areas, and and you can have an incredible successful career uh, outside of what you thought you were the plan was to do.
0: And before we get to the next one, Pranav, sorry. So one thing I want to ask is like, so you essentially switched careers like after six months of doing that this job for us, as an example. So how did that go? Did did you like face any challenges for that switch? Because uh, I guess. You know, switching streams uh, completely is, you know, a very feared thing to do. And I would like you to like, you know, talk about
1: that a bit. So, I mean, the way I switched is I just went back to school, right? So it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal. It's like, oh, he wants to continue education. And, you know, I was able to, while I was in pursuing the master's in computer science, do a couple internships, be able to build good experience, to be able to land another job. I also had started with my friend, the Scouts Consulting Group at the time where I work now. And we were able to, to land some clients and I was able to, you know, that, that is effectively sports analytics consulting, right? So I was leveraging the consulting skills and the data skills that I was learning. And it wasn't as far a leap as me jumping into a completely different industry. Like it was still like a little similar to both, but it was more on my terms. And I was able to, to maximize on, on both of the, like the stuff I cared about
2: okay yeah so uh, the second question uh, in the series is that uh, we all read books and are fans of movies so what is uh, a book and a movie that again has a has impacted your life in a positive way
1: so books are easy uh, atomic habits is one i'm going to say two books i don't watch that many movies i hate to tell you guys yeah uh, well maybe maybe like I'm trying to think there's probably like a documentary or something that would really be meaningful to me. I can't think of it right now. Um, so atomic habits is one awaken the giant within was a really good one by, by Tony Robbins. Um, Why we sleep is a good one and talks about the importance of sleep and, and how it relates to effect effectively all of our performance. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I read a lot, so there's constantly new books that are relevant. I'm currently reading this one by Ray Dalio called The Principles of Dealing with the Changing World Order. So it's a long one, but a pretty good one as well.
0: Thank you, again. Thank you so much. This has been a great episode. We covered a lot of topics, but then I guess we've gone into, touch touched something of everything and I hope It really helps our audience who's listening to us and it provides some value to you guys too. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me on. Have a great one, guys. Uh,
0: Have a great day too. Thank you.
1: Awesome.